Escape Pod 84 December 14, 2006 Today's story, Smooth Talking, by Tobias S. Buckhill Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and once again we're sponsored by FundableFilms.com, where you can help make good movies happen. Last week I talked about possibly spinning off fantasy stories from Escape Pod. At the same time, there was a heated discussion in the comments thread to Mike Resnick's story, Travels with My Cats. People on the whole liked the story quite a lot, but the debate, and this really surprised me, had to do with whether it was science fiction. One person said they kept waiting for the aliens to show up. Many others posted to say, um, no, it was fantasy. Resnick himself posted to state that clearly some large fraction of fans consider it SF because it won the Hugo Award. The question matters because it does confuse people when the term science fiction is used in different contexts. I'm going to be lazy here and excerpt the rest of my intro from one of my own comments in that thread. I quote, What I'm seeing is that there are two different and historically valid meanings of science fiction. The first meaning of science fiction in use here is the literal fiction based on science. That can be a loose or tight coupling, and you can spend years arguing whether time travel or faster than light or psychohistory ever made any sense. But the premise that the author presents is that the divergence from our world is scientific, not magical. This is distinct from fantasy, which is the other way around. The other definition of science fiction, just as valid and arguably more historically rooted, is exemplified by Damon Knight's famous quote, Science fiction means what we point to when we say it. It refers to that whole broad class of stuff that science fiction fans enjoy and gather to talk about. In more recent times, that meaning has been transferred to the more precise but less vivid label, speculative fiction. But the usage is still alive and common. It's how the Sci-Fi Channel gets to call itself Sci-Fi when they show plenty of fantasy and horror, too. And it's what Escape Pod means when we call ourselves the Science Fiction Podcast Magazine. Injecting and fantasy into that would sound very clumsy, and calling ourselves the Speculative Fiction Podcast Magazine would make it harder to reach out to those who aren't in the conversation already. Science fiction is a household term worldwide. Speculative fiction is not. Most people come here and get what we're talking about, and in all the longer descriptions, we do mention fantasy too. Meanwhile, what I'm learning more each week is that a good story is a good story, and that getting too hung up on labels often means missing the fun. So, whatever we end up doing in the long term, we'll still call ourselves a science fiction magazine, and if you want to know what we mean by that, just watch where we're pointing. Our story this week is... yep, it's a fantasy. We present Smooth Talking by Tobias S. Bakel. Mr. Bakel's appeared here before with A Green Thumb and Her. Like those stories, this one has an ecological twist. He lives in Ohio, and his first novel, Crystal Rain, is currently out from Tor. His second one, Ragamuffin, is due out in June. The story is read for us this time by Steve Anderson, a Skapod listener and professional actor and writer. He is available for your voiceover or creative development needs. You can check out his extensive resume at sgacreative.com. And if you're in Maryland or Pennsylvania, over the next couple of weeks, he's doing a very cool one-man show of A Christmas Carol. Find more details on his shows at greattaleslive.com. So lean back, 
but don't put your feet up on the desk. It's story time. Smooth Talking by Tobias S. Buckel Marcus pulled on the steering wheel with both hands and forced the Ford Ranger right. The front wheels skipped, bounced, then the rear dug in, spinning and spewing mud out past the flaps. His truck slowly started up the switchback. Marcus glanced at the passenger's side of the bench seat. Shit! He reached out and righted his cup of Pepsi, wedging it again between the half-eaten burger and scuffed beige satchel. Marcus shifted into second, steering away from the edge. The road itself barely offered enough room for the ranger, and he kept a nervous eye on the edge. It was barely delineated in the dusk against all the other mud and greenery. Why me? Marcus wondered. Firing Roger was one thing. Driving up Killer Mountain switchbacks to do it was a whole different story. The demands of leadership, he sighed. Marcus wrestled the ranger up one last switchback. At this point, he managed it well, popping the front up and over, then barreling straight for the main clearing. And there sat Roger's small hatchback, near several halved logs, looking almost green rather than light blue in the orange twilight. Marcus surged his truck through several enormous ribbed tracks and pulled up into the impromptu parking lot. The dome light winked on as he stepped out. Roger? No answer. Not that Marcus really expected one at this point. He'd been calling Roger at home and on the company's cell phone for three days. Marcus cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted into the trees, Hey, buddy, it's me, Marcus! Marcus stepped over the logs and disturbed muck around them into the natural clearing. Twigs snapped as he approached the shadowy border where the clearing stopped and the towering Douglas firs began. All Roger had left was a note saying he couldn't come back to work because his desk had been screaming at him. The man could be up to almost anything. Marcus avoided a branch with bark wrinkled like an old man's skin. The white wood gleamed in what little light the day had left to offer. What do you say to men whose desks scream at them? Hell, desk work could pile up on anybody, but running up into the middle of a logging operation and skipping work was not the way to deal with it. Roger! Come on, man, it's getting late! Marcus stepped through into the shadows of the giant trees and lost the last of the light. As his eyes adjusted, he saw Roger sitting on a stump, dressed in a tailored Gianelli three-piece suit. Roger's hand-sewn $700 Italian leather shoes were caked with dirt and fur needles. Marcus slowly stepped forward. A needle snapped. Roger turned around. His loose hair twisted with him, no longer held down by gel or spray. He self-consciously smoothed it down with a palm. "'Hello, Marcus. What are you doing up here?' Marcus spread his arms. I was going to ask you the same. Roger sighed, shifted his position on the stump, and then turned back away from Marcus. What I'm trying to do, Marcus, is talk that tree into moving. Marcus didn't say anything. He stood behind someone he thought he once knew and tried to figure what to say next. Not a man normally tied for words, Marcus found himself in the very surreal position of being speechless. Roger's lost it, Marcus thought. 
12 years of working for me, and he's finally lost it. It's very obvious, Roger explained. He stood up on the stump and pointed up the slope further, where the switchback tapered off into a confusion of mud and a barren landscape of fallen trees and stumps. The logging is coming this way. Yes, Marcus said slowly. It is coming this way. That is what loggers do. They cut down the trees. Roger spun and looked down at him. I know that, Marcus. I'm not stupid or insane. Okay, I'm sorry. Marcus chided himself silently. What the hell did he say that for? But you have us back at the office wondering what's going on, Roger. Really? Roger spun on the stump a little further. Oh, wow. You must have driven all the way up here just to check on me? Well, I spent a lot of time asking your neighbors where the hell you'd gone. You've missed three days. Roger stepped down. You really are a wonderful friend. I never realized you cared. Fallen furs crunched as he stepped towards Marcus. Too close, Marcus realized. Is he going to hug me? Sure enough, Roger threw his arms out and pulled Marcus forward into a big bear hug. Man, you don't know how much this means to me, he sniffled as Marcus stood there in shock, rigid, waiting for Roger to pull away. I thought you were another rat racer, all caught up in the property values, subcontracting vacant lots. My God, you actually have a soul. Marcus bit his lip. Look, I don't want to go home with you and meet your kids. I'm just your boss, okay? I couldn't reach you anywhere. You left that strange note with the secretary. I was... Roger snorted and cut him off. You're worried about reduced productivity, he asked. Well, yes, of course I am, Roger. You've sold, what, a single house this last couple months? I know. Roger slumped back onto the stump. It's been so hard. Look, Roger, Marcus started. Roger smiled. You're here to fire me, Marcus, right? Marcus swallowed. Roger had guessed right, but now Marcus didn't have the heart to follow through after Roger's desperate display of gratitude for finding him. It's... Look, why don't you take some time off, Roger, to relax? With pay, Roger asked. Uh, Marcus wasn't so sure about that. Kiss my ass! Roger put his head into his hands. I've been your best friend for most of the twelve damn years you've been here. I swear we'll take you back after some time off. And counseling, Marcus said, giving himself a smooth out. If Roger got better, he'd take him back. If he didn't, that time off without pay would just keep going. Trust me. Roger sat back down on the stump. His arms were floppy with middle age, and his belly settled in around his lap. He cupped his chin in his right hand's palm, with his knee propped off to the side to support the elbow. The pose dissolved when he shifted again. <sighs> okay, Roger said. I'll do it. Marcus breathed a sigh of relief. Things weren't going to be so hard. But I tell you, Roger continued, things have never been the same since my desk started screaming. I don't know if they'll ever be the same again. Marcus held up his arms as if to ward off the words. I, I don't need to know, Roger. Keep it on the inside. He turned around. Enjoy the downtime, bud. 
He left Roger and delicately weaved his way through the mud back into his pickup. He tossed the burger out of the window after inspecting it. The grease, now a white, congealed substance, made him queasy. Maybe it wasn't just the grease that had killed his appetite, but his quick little lie to Roger, promising to take him back. What, is he always the asshole? Marcus turned the car on, remembering the last time he'd seen Tia, his ex-wife. He'd asked the same question. Yes, she said. He flicked the headlights on and scrabbled for a piece of gum in the dim green glow of the instrument panel. Then he inched the Ford down the switchback, still afraid of the invisible edges. Everyone had already left the building and gone home. Marcus swiveled his leather executive chair around with a flourish and stood up. The printer started spitting freshly inked pages. Time to leave, Marcus thought, rubbing his tired eyes. The Sofrier's paperwork was finished, and soon they would be buying a nice little brick ranch just outside of the town. And that was the last piece of paperwork for the night. Everything had been double load since Roger's vacation. The late nights were a regular thing now. Marcus had been unable to find any realtors to replace Roger after almost three weeks of trying. Marcus walked out into the hallway and shut his door behind him with a click. He made the mistake of looking at Roger's office. The door lay slightly ajar. The sound of sniffling caught Marcus's ear. Roger's wife? She should be in Vancouver, Marcus thought, shouldn't she? The helpless undertones of the sound tugged at Marcus. He stood for a second longer and heard another sniffle. He pushed the door all the way open. The crying softened, and Marcus thought for sure he heard feminine tones. He flicked the light on. The room was empty. Hello? Nothing. Marcus shook his head. The wind outside must have picked up. He flipped the lights off and turned around. He heard it again, a definite sob, if not a wail, and pain. Marcus flicked the lights back on. No imagining it, there was someone in this room with him. Marcus looked at the desk, and Roger's strange words kicked around in his head. He strode over the teal carpet and walked around the desk. There was no one underneath it. Another sniffle. Who's there? he asked, frustrated. Help me, the desk begged. Marcus jumped back with a startled shriek. Roger had a wailing desk. Could only mean he was going insane, too. Could insanity catch? Hello, the desk whispered. Marcus closed his eyes and groaned. He counted to ten silently. I'm scared, the desk said. Marcus didn't reply. Edging carefully closer to the desk, ready to snap around and run, he looked down. In the shadowy light, he could see the outline of a form. The grain of Roger's desk swirled into a pair of lean thighs. Marcus followed them up to the small V where they intersected, and then further around a small waspish stomach and waist to a tiny pair of budding breasts and a face. Grainy swirls of hair framed the pixie-like features. Marcus started to sweat. He backed away from the desk. This isn't happening, he told himself. There are drugs that can help. He'd overloaded himself, like Roger, by adding Roger's work to his own. 
Or, or was there a speaker built into the desk? A horrible joke. Marcus laughed suddenly. Where's the intercom? he asked. I'm scared, the girl in the desk repeated. I'm not hearing you, Marcus said. He put the palms of his hands over his ears. They were cold. You have to help. Why are you doing this to me? I shouldn't hear you. Marcus closed his eyes. I'm dying, the voice said. They cut me up. They trapped me in here. Please, help. How can I be hearing you, Marcus asked. He realized with a full sinking feeling that there was no intercom. This wasn't a prank. You can hear me because I can hear you. What do you want? I'm scared. Help me. Help you what? Marcus's voice broke. What do you want? I want to die, the voice in the desk pleaded. Please kill me. Please end this suffering. Marcus leaned over the desk. Dark, almond eyes met his. The stain made them waver around the edges. Desk tears. Please help. He backed out of the room and closed the door. Even through the oak paneling, he could hear the crying start again. Oh, God, he thought. Now I've walked over the edge. I've lost it. Just step through the door, he told himself. Don't forget to turn around and lock it. Go down the path and get in the Ford. He followed his own directions. The inside of his Ford Ranger seemed like another universe, quiet and cold. When he started up the engine, he felt reassured by the throaty rumble. Machines equal order, he thought. Marcus sat there for a minute, looking out the front window shield at the black asphalt in front of his hood. The scratchy, plaintive plea echoed in the back of his mind. Please help. I want to die. Marcus shifted in the bench seat and hit the steering wheel with the flat of his hand. Could he refuse? Was he that much of an asshole? Damn it! Okay, it was just a desk. If burning it took care of the voices, he'd do it. Marcus floored the accelerator and fishtailed out of the parking lot onto the road. Several hours later, Marcus pushed a gray and rusted dolly into the office. The left wheel squeaked. He bit his lower lip as he flipped the lights on. Just like before, nothing. He'd imagined it all. Marcus risked a glance at the top of the desk. No... He could still see the still form. He took a deep breath, walked around the desk, and pulled all the drawers out. He squatted with a grunt and pushed the heavy desk over onto its end. With even more effort, he wrestled the spade of the dolly underneath and tipped the desk over. He almost collapsed under the weight, but managed to balance it. By the time he negotiated the doorway, he could feel his heart thudding against the inside of his chest. Sweat stung his eyes and forced him to blink furiously. The desk remained silent. He pulled it out onto the lawn and yanked a can of lighting fluid out from his pocket. Is there anything else I should do? Marcus asked. Silence. 
Okay. He stood back up, pulled the cap off, and started spraying the desk. The desk sighed. Marcus ignored it. He looked up at the clear night sky. He mentally traced out the fuzzy swath of the Milky Way, his breath fogging the air in front of him. He lit a Marlboro. Marcus hadn't smoked in five years, but he'd kept a spare in the glove compartment just in case. The tip of the cigarette glowed, and a wave of dizziness washed down toward the pit of his stomach. There are others, the voice in Roger's desk said. More where I came from. They're in danger. You have to warn them. Marcus nodded. Of course. He took another long drag and tossed the cigarette at the flat surface of the desk. It leaped into flames. A whole can of fluid was a great starter. The desk screamed and crackled, warping at the edges. Marcus stared at the flames, looking for some gaseous form to reach up toward the sky and drift off toward the stars. He only saw smoke. Eventually, the last embers died. The wind stirred the ashes, all that remained of the desk. It lifted them up into the air like a gentle tornado. Marcus opened the door and got into the cab of his Ford. He leaned his head against the steering wheel. Others... Roger had talked to the desk, too. That made sense. It was Roger's desk. Roger must have traced where the wood had been cut and left to save the trees. An hour's drive from here, Marcus remembered. Why? Guilt. Marcus looked out of his truck at the houses with pretty green lawns and asphalt driveways. He'd started twelve years ago. Just some young city boy realtor with a half-assed dream of developing the area. When he drove these streets, Marcus was proud of the development he'd brought here. But Roger must have remembered all those great trees that stood here twelve years ago. Trees that Marcus only barely remembered existing. Until now. It was time to go home. Time to go to sleep. He could come in tomorrow and pretend this hadn't happened. All the office would know is that some idiot had broken in and burned Roger's desk on the front lawn. But he couldn't get the image of the girl in the desk out of his mind, her wrists sliced off at their edge, trapped. How many hundreds or thousands of others had Marcus condemned? If they could speak, they could feel, couldn't they? The thing in Roger's desk had cried, hadn't it? Marcus wrenched the wheel left. The tire squealed and the pickup leaned, pushing Marcus away from the door. All right, he said. Here's another nut job of a realtor coming up to talk to a bunch of damn trees. He rolled down his window and leaned out, letting the cold air hit his face and wake him up. Marcus really didn't want to be insane. Marcus was a good man. He sold decent houses on decent lots for decent prices to decent people. Why couldn't Roger have done the job properly? Why couldn't Roger have talked the damn trees into saving themselves before everyone thought him insane? (sighs) Christ. Marcus looked back at his gloomy reflection in the window. Marcus stepped over the logs and disturbed muck around them into the natural clearing. He made his way toward the shadowy border where the clearing stopped and the towering Douglas firs began lit only by the stars and the gibbous moon, they could have been giants. The 
constant hum of the city, the reassurance that humans were all around you, eating, doing taxes, showering, falling in love, hailing a taxi. None of that was here. So here I am, Marcus yelled up at the canopy. Logging machines hulked in the forest just across the muddy road. Giant, yellow, metal beasts. I think I have you all figured out, he said. You're all dryads, right? I've read about you. He sat down, cross-legged on a stump. Roger's stump. I mean, hell, what else could you be? Those weird stories had to come from somewhere. He looked around at the trees. Can you hear me? No answer. Marcus spread his legs and looked down at the rings underneath his crotch. A young tree. Of course. I can see why you don't want to answer. You, You probably survived all this time by not showing yourselves to any people. It's either that, or I'm trying to explain away my insanity. And right now, I would really appreciate even the smallest response, you know? He waited, then continued. I I mean, even if it is a hallucination, you can at least do me the favor of responding. The wind rustled through the branches. A few yellow leaves floated down. Fall would soon have the forest floor carpeted with them. Well, no... Marcus stopped himself. Not this forest. Other forests, maybe. This one would be a bare hill by the time fall came in full. I'm not a tree hugger, right? But I'm as green-minded as anyone else. He laughed. That's sarcasm. I like to drive my pickup, low mileage and all. I like having pencils and paper and reading TV guides and tossing it in the trash. But it's not like I'm saying I don't care. Marcus stood up on the stump. Lend me your ears, he thought. I I buy dolphin-safe tuna? I separate my aluminum, plastic? (sighs) All... He paused and indicated the forest. This... This isn't the same department. So come on, help me! Nothing. Okay. They were just like shy customers, Marcus thought. They needed the right hook. No, he corrected himself... These were trees. Talking, breathing trees. Shy trees. And what was he selling them? He wasn't sure. He just wanted to deliver his message and get the hell out of there and never talk to a piece of wood again. You couldn't start a pitch if you didn't even know what you were trying to sell. He knew. He started over. One of your kind asked me for help. So here I am, talking to you. I am here to warn you. I don't know what exactly you all are, whether you're trees or spirits or actual flesh and blood beings like I am. But come this morning, every single one of you hearing my words will be dead if you don't do something. No response. Bad pitch. Come on, talk to me, please. Marcus jumped down from the stump. I'm not insane, he screamed into the forest at the top of his lungs. I'm not insane. You're all out there. You can hear me. I know you can hear me. I'm doing you the favor, I swear to God. He looked down at a large orange bulb of a mushroom growing out from a green vein of moss. It perched on one of the roots of the stump he stood on. He didn't have to do this. Marcus walked back toward his truck. In the dark, it looked almost green rather than light blue. Just beyond it sat the bulldozers. 
Oh, shit. He couldn't leave them. No, that would weigh on his conscience. I'm not an asshole, he thought. He squelched the tiny, annoying voice in the back of his mind that kept telling him, They don't exist! and turned back around. I'm still here, he said to the trees. I'm not going anywhere unless you move first. And that was that. Marcus knew the tricks. The first fingers of dawn, green hues mixed with the slightest bits of orange, lazily crept their way into the distant eastern sky. Marcus had told the Douglas firs about logging and carpentry and strip mining. He threatened, yelled, and begged. It felt good to scream at the damn unmoving trees. He was cleansing, not something he'd ever done in a long time. And then Marcus rallied to tell them about dolphins, manatees, elephants, tigers, and everything else dying out across the face of the planet. He did not mourn their passing except in a distant, intellectual manner, but he used it all as a warning to the stolid trees. It had to work, Marcus screamed in his own head. If not, people would think he was an insane tree-hugger. Marcus Hetko, head of the largest realty here, the very man who carved a town after the trees and wilderness, was not an insane tree-hugger. This had to work. But only a still silence hung over the forest. None of the threats of man's machines or practices had the effect Marcus hoped for. It occurred to Marcus that the trees had millennia of undisturbed quiet on their side. I saw one of your kind, he said. Remember? That's why I'm here. She was beautiful. Marcus sat huddled against the tree stump, trying to keep his eyes from closing. God, he was tired. He closed his eyes and visualized what he had seen on Roger's desk. She had a smooth body, very curved, and almond eyes. You would have wept to see how they pleaded with me. There was so much in a glance. He wished he had another cigarette. He sat with his back to the trunk, looking up the lines of bark, branches, and the gaps of dawn just making it through spaces in between leaves. And as beautiful as she was, she was trapped, crying, begging, in a desk. She'd been cut from the elbows up and the knees, sliced, sliced down to a quarter of an inch and preserved with a covering of stain. Imagine, will you, the chemicals being laid down on her flawless body, seeping through her skin, waterproofing her against coffee spills and condensation from soda cans. She asked to die. She asked me. So I dragged her out onto the lawn. I used fire to free her. Can you imagine how long it took for her to slowly die? His voice shook, suffering as the flames licked at her body. The vivid and violent image seemed to spill out of him into the surrounding calm. Leaves rustled in response. That's enough, came the whisper from the forest. It resonated deep in Marcus's chest. You can stop saying these things now. Marcus whirled around but saw nothing. His heart thudded. Branches rustled in the shadows. I told you so, he said. I'm not insane. 
He clenched his jaw. He wouldn't start crying merely because a tree had talked to him. <sighs> merely. Maybe crying was a good idea, because it meant he'd finally leaped off the deep end, like Roger. Humans have been using trees from the area for as long as we can remember, the voice said. Why should we worry now? Marcus stood up. He stank and needed a shave. His suit would probably never recover from the mud, grass stains, and wrinkles. His shoes still had fur needles plastered to their sides. And yet all he could think was, they'd answered him. Are you all dryads? He looked around at the furs. Some are, the voice replied. Marcus wanted to yell or shout in celebration. The rest are trees. Marcus pointed to the machines behind his ford. Everything here will be taken, you and the trees. Why? Because, Marcus gaped, haven't you been listening to me? The voice stayed quiet for a few seconds before replying, No, we tried to ignore you. The machines will take all the trees and you. You obviously haven't been looking upslope, have you? We don't move much. It tends to alarm people, the voice said. Marcus thought he had a bead on it. It came from his left. He looked at the fur. If he strained, he could make out wrinkled, ancient features on the bark. He addressed it. You said you could move. If that's true, you have to move. You have to act in your own self-interest. You have to protect yourselves. Marcus heard the sound of vehicles sloshing through the mud on their way up the switchback. The loggers will be coming up to man their equipment. You don't have much time. We've lived for centuries. We have plenty of time. Marcus scratched the stubble on his face and looked back at the machines. Several pickups bumped their way across the ruts and parked alongside his Ford. A young man with a yellow hard hat looked in the cab and then turned in Marcus's direction. Let me put it this way, Marcus said quickly. He cracked a broad smile. The trees needed real estate. He knew exactly how to help them. Location, location, location. You're in the wrong one. We can sit here and watch. Once those machines start up, you're fucked. The land you're sitting on is not good for you. You desperately need a move. Or I'll find you one day in one of my customers' cabinets and have to burn you too so you don't spend the rest of your short life suffering. The tree, or dryad, Marcus still couldn't say which for sure, didn't answer. And time was running short. A pair of loggers had started following the muddy imprints of footsteps toward the stump. Marcus trotted over to the tree and jumped for the lowest branch. He was tired. He missed. The logger, a rail-thin man with rope-like muscles, strode into the firs. Hey! Damn it, the other logger swore. Not another one! Shit! Marcus jumped again and caught the branch. He hung there for a second, kicked off his shoes, then used his feet to scrabble up into the nook. He straddled it for a second and panted. His arms still ached from moving the desk last night. What the hell are you doing? The logger looked up at Marcus. He shook his head. Shit, man, we've already had someone out here a few weeks ago doing this. Marcus shook his head. These are special trees, he said. 
I'm sure they are, but we still have to cut them down. The logger turned back. Lanny, come on over here. We got another tree hugger. I am not a tree hugger, Marcus protested, while pulling himself up to another branch to get out of reach. Look, man, we're not anti-environmentalists here. The man sounded like he had to say those words often enough. We plant two saplings for every tree we cut down. Now come down off of there before you fall or hurt yourself. No. Lenny arrived, and the two men muttered for a few seconds. Lenny looked up. We're gonna have to call the police. Fine by me. They'll drag you out of there. That's okay. Shit, man. How long do you think you can last up there? You didn't even bring any food with you. Not very long, Marcus answered. They all stared at each other for several seconds. Then the logger in the yellow hard hat finally shrugged. All right. They left. Marcus waited. The sound of chainsaws shattered the morning air from across the switchback. The first trees fell, crashing through branches and hitting the ground with a thud. Marcus still waited, saying nothing. The nook of the branch dug into his crotch, and his left leg fell asleep. A lone Mountie in Scarlet showed up half an hour later. The chainsaws were still at it, and a long, train-like procession, trucks roared their way up higher to load up on logs. See, Marcus whispered, they won't take a few and leave. They're here for everything. Look up slope. They'll plant trees, but it's bare ground already. It'll be too late for you. The tree had fallen silent. Marcus blinked his crusty eyes at the new rays of light filtering in through the foliage. He guessed he looked the part of a raving lunatic at this point. The Mountie picked his way over to the tree stump Marcus had spent the night on. Hey there, son, he called out. Hi, sir. I ran your plates. You're Marcus, right? I am, Marcus confirmed. How long are you going to be up there? Marcus shrugged. I'm waiting for the tree to move, he grinned. Okay. The Mountie's hat bobbed, a tassel shifting. I've called for someone else better at this sort of thing than I am. He'll be here within the hour. We'll talk about what you want. Marcus pushed his back up against the tree. He turned into one of those people you would watch on late-night TV, doing something utterly outside of his comprehension for God only knew what reason. He turned back to the trunk of the tree and pressed his face against the bark, pushing at the rough ridges with his fingertips. Come on, he whispered fiercely. You have to move. Not just for you, but me now. They'll all think I'm mad. Where are we to move to, the tree asked. Marcus felt a surge of relief. He thought he had lost the tree to silence again. It continued to speak. This is all we have known. Everything else is strange and dangerous. I know the land, Marcus said. It's my job. I know all the lands in the area and beyond. I can guide you to a safe place where they will never disturb you. The Mountie shifted. Twigs snapped under his feet. You talking to me? he asked. The tree's branches swayed. Can you promise us this? it asked. I can promise you, Marcus said loudly. I do promise. This is not a lie. It's not an easy out, he told himself. Promise me what? the Mountie asked. The trunk shook. Marcus yelped and wrapped his arms around an extra branch that tore at the tender inner part of his forearm. The world around him trembled. 
Leaves fell and branches swayed wildly. He looked down. Roots uncurled and broke out of the mud. They ripped at the undergrowth. Splinters of wood and bark rained down to the ground. They're moving! Marcus screamed at the Mountie and the rest of the world. He leaned back and howled. The shiver of the tree ran up through his thighs and into his torso. He wasn't insane. He couldn't imagine this. The entire length of the tree shifted, and Marcus pitched forward, blooding his lip against the trunk. The Mountie gaped and tripped over the stump as he backed away. He didn't try and get back up. He stared up at Marcus and the tree. The ripping sound that the roots made as they came out of the ground spread throughout the forest. The chainsaws fell silent by it. Shouts of surprise and fear floated out into the clearing. Maybe every tenth tree was pulling itself out of the ground. The loggers looked around, and one by one they started trickling out into the clearing by their trucks. I'm not crazy, Marcus yelled at them, his face glowing. These really are special trees! He couldn't see their faces, but if the awe and reverence reflected anything like that of the expression on the Mountie's face, they probably would never feel quite the same in any forest again. The tree moved forward in long strides. The bark, forced away to reveal tall, strong legs, still fell in scales as they moved through the forest. The other dryads ranged from old giants like the one Marcus rode to small saplings, The smaller saplings stayed close to the shadows of their elders. Each dryad was a carved, primal beauty. Marcus skirted the edge of an emotion he had trouble identifying. Worship of the perfect and unspeakably ancient? The wooden gods of the forest spread awe through him of some sort. Maybe in the distant past, Marcus's kind worshipped at the roots of such giants. We are moving, the dryad whispered. Now what? Past the slope of the mountain, Marcus could look out across the whole valley, and beyond that he had the maps in his head. We're headed for a park, Marcus said. He was selling them on a move. It's 480,000 acres on a heavily wooded lot. Scenic lakes, mountains, good skiing in the winter, and only 30 minutes from town. They don't cut trees there. We'd like that, the dryad rumbled. Marcus kissed the branch. Of course you would. They left the Mountie still lying down, stunned. The loggers stirred from their stupor and got into vehicles to follow them. More cars showed up until an entire procession glided along the roads near the massive walking trees. Marcus remained balanced on the branch, looking down at the shifting leafy shadows they cast on the road below. Roger would have to come back, Marcus thought, as he guided the trees straight through the two towns between the mountain and the park. He wished Roger could see him close this deal. He'd done well for the trees. He'd done well for Roger. Hell, he thought he'd done well for himself. It wasn't often in life everyone got a win-win deal. And that was our story. If you ever see the trees move like that where you live, I think shouting, the Ents are marching to Isengard, should get you a bonus point. And ten bonus points for shouting, Burnham would be come to Dunsinane, if you know what it means. So, 
We kind of covered feedback to Travels With My Cats in the intro, but that was skipping ahead a week. I also want to talk about the response to Margin of Error, the sibling silence rivalry story by Nancy Kress. The feedback here was a similar pattern to the feedback to Nano Comes to Clifford Falls. The first several comments were people loving the story. Martha and Aaron both said that they had some Nancy Kress backreading to do. And then came quite a lot of criticism of the story's character archetypes. Jennifer said, Wow, this is amazingly hateful of anyone who doesn't want children. Gee, if you'd only wanted children, you wouldn't have had to die. My friend Chris the Fixed Kitty said, If your child's free and out of the closet about it, this kind of you-must-be-emotionally-damaged assumption is old news. To which Jim and Buffalo replied that he didn't think the narrator here was supposed to be sympathetic. And then there was some speculation about Miss Cress herself and her beliefs and attitudes. Brian said, If this story had not been written by someone with an axe to grind, it might have been very entertaining. So here's my take. I can't argue with people's perceptions of a story. If you hated its themes, I'm not going to tell you you should like them. But I think it's always a risky thing to transfer the attitudes of a character in a fiction story to its author. It's not widely believed that Thomas Harris, the author of Hannibal, eats people, or that Scott Sigler delights in high body counts in real life. We've run two Nancy Crest stories so far, which is a fairly thin sample. She's written many, many more stories than that. We'll be running more from her that are very different from these two pieces. So if you didn't like this story, that's perfectly valid, but I think making assumptions about any prejudices Nancy Crest might have is, at best, a logical fallacy, and at worst, a little gray on our no-insults policy. Enough of that. Another administrivial bit. Our archive CDs at poddisc.com have been selling very well, and I'm thrilled about that. It's more money to keep Escape Pod going. If you want to order some CDs and have them arrive in time for Christmas, there's still a few days left. I can't make guarantees like orders placed by December X will arrive before Christmas, but we're doing our best to send them out as fast as people order them. If you've donated $20 or more to Escape Pod this year, or if you're one of our $5 a month subscribers, you should have gotten an email from me a couple days ago with a gift certificate to Poddisc. That's our way of saying thanks for making Escape Pod happen. If you didn't get it, first check the email address you use for PayPal payments. And if it's still not there, drop me a line at poddisc at escapeartist.info, and I'll make sure you're set right. Once again, thanks. We're close to donations to this month to encourage you to give to other charities. But if, as a group, you're as generous in 2007 as you've been in 2006, I think we'll see some really amazing things here. Speaking of things worth supporting, our sponsor again this week is FundableFilms.com. That's Andy Doan's project to allow you, the individual film fan, to support indie films by giving a small amount and buying a piece of a movie project. This is a really serious effort, and I think it's actually quite important for science fiction in particular. You've seen the same things I've seen. As Hollywood SF movies get bigger and more expensive, the economic pressure is for them to get dumber, because they can't risk going over anybody's head. Independent film is an antidote to that. Partly on its own merits, look back on our review of Primer, the smartest SF film I've ever seen, which was made for $7,000, but also because by giving people choices, they're forcing Hollywood to try to stay smart. The net result is that when good independent films get made and people see them, the entire art form wins. And Fundable Films is a bold way for you to participate in that process. I want these guys to succeed. You can help out by going over there, clicking on the Join Us link at the top, and making a $30 donation. 
That'll get you a t-shirt and a $50 credit toward your first film sponsorship. I've donated to them, and if you like smart film, I hope you'll consider it too. Escape Pod is, as you know, Bob, a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. We are non-parasitic and non-mutating, but we'd like to be viral in the happy market babble sense. If you'd like to buy some CDs, that's at poddisc.com, and if you'd like to be creeped out, that's on our horror podcast, pseudopod.org. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. Their music is viral too, the experimental mutant X-Virus that turns you 60 feet tall and makes you breathe fire. Experience it at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quote is a verse from Ogden Nash. I think that I shall never see a billboard lovely as a tree. Indeed, unless the billboards fall, I'll never see a tree at all. We'll see you next week, and have fun. Have fun.